This episode is brought to you by Verve Super, Australia's first ethically invested super founded by women for women plus. Verve actively seeks investments that lead the way in gender equality, carbon efficiency and sustainability while we're striving for the best financial returns for members. Join Verve Super, an easy way to build wealth and invest in a better world. This is general advice. Consider if right for you. Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Sarah. And this is Big Small Talk. This is the podcast where we try and cover the entirety of the news cycle from the serious to the frivolous all in one place. Because loving pop culture doesn't mean you don't understand politics. And today we're going to talk about inflation, Maddie J versus Clementine Ford, Dan Andrews, Sophie Turner and Joe Jonas again, (laughs) a US soldier returning from North Korea and a royal commission into the abuse and neglect of Australians with disabilities. But first, we would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording today, the Gadigal people, and pay our respects to elders past and present. But before we get into it, what is your personal headline of the week? I have had like seven hours sleep this entire week. We are running off fumes. The book launch has gone really well. I flew in from Melbourne this morning and came directly here from the airport it's been massive. I'm yeah. on my period. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a very exciting week for It's you. been so much. Like, I've had such a nice time with multiple launches in Melbourne and Sydney. Um, I had, like, a party with my friends on Saturday. It's been such a great time. But you need to go sleep for, like, a week now. I do. I really need to lie horizontally for a really long time. Yeah. And I sort of did that in the studio this morning. I was, like, in the sun like a cat, <laughs> just, like, trying to gain energy and conserve. What about you? What's your personal headline? I'm also exhausted, but not for a good enough reason Mm. as if, like, I've just come out with a book, just more because I went to a farm party over the long weekend and I just drove back in kind of late last night and I'm just going off for such little sleep. But I love that. I'm passionate about that. I'm passionate about that we're sort of channeling the same energy today. Yeah, no, we, we were texting each other last night because I was like oh, how are you feeling? And it was just like, let's be Delulu tomorrow. Let's just be so girly pop. (laughs) So girly pop exhausted. But I'm excited. We're going to slay. Okay, let's get into it. After a four-year investigation, the Royal Commission into the Violence, Abuse, Neglect and Exploitation of People with Disability has released its final report, making 222 recommendations. So, after four and a half years spent with both public and private hearings, the inquiry have submitted their final report that is 13 volumes long. So, it includes evidence and experience from over 9,000 members of the disabled community and community representatives. So, why was this called in the first place? So, the federal inquiry into this was actually back in 2015, and they recommended to the government that this become a royal commission. And for context, royal commissions actually operate entirely independently from the current government and they're given powers to talk to whoever they need, to consult with whoever they need, any experts, and to request evidence, like their own thing. So then it wasn't until 2019 that this Royal Commission began. And for what it actually revealed, it confirmed that Australians with disability experience higher rates of violence, abuse and neglect than Australians without a disability. It also found that the Australian government failed in its job to protect people with disability, despite commitments our government have previously made in accordance to international human rights. It also found that the abuse spanned across multiple generations, which I thought was interesting. And a really common story in these hearings was that 
those who were removed as children from their families then had their own children removed from them. And this was especially prevalent in the First Nations communities. It was actually really interesting what the report found in context of First Nations people, stating that it understands that First Nations people experience a unique marginalization with this prejudice against disability, as it's made worse by racism and the impacts of colonialism. It was also reported to the commission that there is a disconnect between the Western understanding of disability and traditional cultural practices. Wow, this is really fascinating. Mm. This is a really important report. Yeah. So ultimately, the Royal Commission, as I said, made 222 recommendations to try and improve the lives of Australians with disabilities. And one of the biggest takeaways was the recommendation for the government to introduce a Human Rights Act. So that would make it law to recognise the rights of Australians living with disability as a way to improve inclusion for them and also create equal access to services such as healthcare. It also called, and this is really interesting, this has been what most people have reported on since this all came out, because it called for special or segregated education to be phased out by the year 2051. So wanting equal access to mainstream education and asking for mainstream schools to stop gatekeeping their education by discouraging disabled students from attending or rejecting their enrolments. This was actually really divided. So quite a few of the commissioners actually disagreed with that fascinating. Yeah, so I'll, we'll circle back to that because there's, it also comes back in a few other points. In terms of employment, a target was set for the year 2034 to end segregated employment and ensure all wages reach the minimum wage, which I also thought was shocking. I thought the point of a minimum wage is we all have to be paid a minimum yeah, wage. Yeah, no, that this is this is part of a big part of the issue in the industry mm. is that you have these segregated workforces where there are people with a disability who are being paid much less for doing the same work and of the same quality. Yeah. Um, and it's a massive issue because how are they supposed to make a livable wage? And in terms of agency and autonomy, that really limits their liberty and doesn't empower them to have their own lives if they're not earning as much simply by the fact that they're disabled. Yeah. Also, housing. The main focus being to phase out group homes. So roughly 17,000 Aussies with disabilities live in group homes together. And the point of group homes is that they have services on site to help if needed. So like good in theory. However, what they have found is that these group homes have really high levels of neglect and really high levels of abuse. So they have instead called for inclusive housing and support for those transitioning out of group homes. Again, it's that phasing out any segregation. My thoughts on this is that the overall evidence and the stories gathered throughout this investigation are harrowing. Also to add, the government have said that they're going to have to take their time to formulate their best response to this and consider each recommendation and that the progress report on this will probably not be until early next year. As Green Senator Jordan Steele John pointed out, and I thought this was quite aptly put, that the big thing this report indicates is that these crimes occur in particular settings, segregated settings, where we are divided from our non-disabled peers in education, in healthcare, employment and housing. And in those settings, we are subject to abuse. With that in mind, though, I actually think it's really fair for the government to take their time in formulating their response to do it properly. Because I do think, like, again, I I probably have to look more into this, but I think the education point's really interesting to be like, oh, we'll, we'll end segregated education. I understand why, but I do think the transition process to that and the amount of thought that would have to go into doing that in a really constructive way is really important because I worry that that's actually quite broad. I I actually think the bigger point that what struck me, because I thought the same thing, right? But Mm. I think the thing that struck me when you were explaining that just then was that it's more about mainstream education being so exclusionary. 
Yes. And and refusing to yeah. adapt or make their resources and their facilities accessible. And it's more about the fact that they are completely excluding entire groups of people that could attend mainstream facilities. And I think mm. that that would be the first step. It make these facilities accessible as possible, not necessarily end seg- segregation altogether, but work towards that inclusive yes. space. I think we're on the same page. Like, obviously, we can see that significant change is needed. We need to do better. And as this is the most expensive Royal Commission to date, I really hope the changes implemented is really effective. And the only thing I was saying on it being broad, and I hope that like consideration is taken, is because, you know, you would need a range of options available because everyone has individual needs and experiences. It's not as blanket as that, I would say, but that is the point of taking its time to respond. And the only issue I have here is that, you know, they don't implement the recommendations because we've seen that happen before. You know, we've seen that there was a Royal Commission to Aboriginal Death in Custody. They have not done what they needed to do to change that. And so much money and so much of people's time and experiences and identities is put to these bodies, to oh, these inquiries. poured into it over and, years. And, and to subject yourself, to, you know, to that is, it's a lot. Um, and we want tangible outcomes and change here because I think that these insights are so valuable. Exactly. That's why I'm like, I'm happy for you to take your time, and but you're taking your time to make something that's really going to be effective. Yeah. And I, you know, to date they haven't. Um, and I think that these recommendations are it's brilliant. It's a brilliant report. I recommend everyone go and have a look. Mm. U.S. soldier Travis King has been returned to the custody of the U.S. after crossing the border to North Korea in July. Now, this story is wild. Yeah, I saw this and I think I sent you the thing and I was like, you'll cover this this Yeah, week. yeah, I got these messages I- from Sarah on Friday that were like, I'm thinking this for you. I'm thinking, it's like someone picking out your outfit and laying it on the bed. That's how I felt. And I was like, thank you, Sarah, <laughs> we'll, we'll do. I think I'm sort of fascinated by North Korea. Oh, I think everyone is. I think it's always one of those things when stuff comes out and when you feel like you don't understand something, when something's private, yes. secret, hidden and a story comes out like this. Also, this adds so much because we're all a bit weird about military, I think. Yes. And the secrecy around negotiations around this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just a bit of a wild tale. And 23, he's 23 years old, right? Yeah, he's really young. So basically the 23-year-old willfully crossed the border from South Korea while on a demilitarized zone border tour, which sounds fancy, but it's actually an area where tourist groups frequent. So it's pretty common. It's not as complicated as it sounds. Yeah. So at the time when he initially went over the border, which was July 18, I believe, Private King was being escorted back to the US to face disciplinary action. So this is where it starts to get a bit murkier. So he was in trouble from the US Yes, army. yes. But he didn't board the plane. It's being reported that he arrived at the boarding gate at Incheon Airport alone. But at the gate, he reportedly, he allegedly <laughs> approached an American Airlines official claiming his passport was missing. Mm. And then the airline employee escorted him to the departures area. But then he basically made his way out of the terminal and to this border crossing, which was 54 kilometres away. Oh, my God. Yeah. So he made a runner from the airport. Basically. And it's a, I don't understand the 54 kilometres, like, that's a long way. And they're saying he made a runner from the airport to avoid, he because he was going back to the US for punishment. But, well, the thing is, and, and reading what I've read so far about this, this story, it seems like there's a bit of a mental health question here. Like, mm. you might think, oh, it's because he's running from the US and, like, potential disciplinary action. Yeah. But this is a bit of an overstep, I would suggest, to choose North Korea. Over disciplinary action. Well, that's what I thought. I was like, how bad does this punishment have to be for you to be like, I choose North Korea? The thing that gets me about this and and makes me question the sort of mental health of 
Travis King is that an eyewitness on this border tour described hearing him laughing before making the run, like loudly like cackling before making the border run. So I, I don't think that's an indicator of someone who's well, who's running to North Korea. Wait, but so what, do we know what he did in the US military to deserve Potential discipline? So basically his history was that he's been in the army since January of 2021. Mm -hmm. Um, He's a cavalry scout. He'd been held in a detention facility in Seoul, which is the capital of South Korea, Mm. after he was getting into fights, basically. And he was reportedly being investigated for assault that occurred in September of last year. So... There was local media reports at the time that he was suspected of punching a Korean national in a nightclub in South Korea in the capital. He was fined about less than four grand for kicking the back door of a police car and screaming foul language at officers who were trying to apprehend him. So there's just like a string of behaviour that's pretty concerning and all these reports quoting that he was released on the 10th of July after serving a couple of months in jail in South Korea for these assault charges. Right. So 10th of July he gets out. 18th of July, he crosses the border. So that's the timeline we're working with. But essentially, there's no doubt here that he willfully crossed the border, that he sort of fleed from the plan and crossed the border himself. It was not like he was, well, that, I mean, reportedly, but clearly that's what's occurred. He's run off laughing into the distance. And then what did North Korea say, have him back? Or did he willfully return? So North Korea has said that they expelled him after finding him guilty of illegally intruding into its territory. But what's seemingly occurred and what's being widely reported in the media is that he was released into US custody last Wednesday after weeks of diplomacy mediated by the Swedish government. Because America doesn't have any relationship with... North Korea. Oh, so, so Sweden had interme- to step in yeah, to like mediate. Exactly. Oh, and so okay. he actually had to get, so he was moved from North Korea to China. And so it was kind of this, this roundtable discussion where US officials have spoken to Sweden because they knew they had a relationship, they could mediate this. And then China's been involved as well. So it's a, a serious global affair. Wait, what's China doing involved? Is that on the behalf of the US? Basically, China's involvement, as I understand it, is that he was moved from North Korea to China where US officials were waiting for him to get him, basically. Right, picked Um, him up from China. Exactly. And there's been this statement released from a senior US administration official that said, after months of intense diplomacy, Private King was returned to US hands and had spoken to his family. They basically said, we can confirm Private King is very happy to be on his way home and he is very much looking forward to reuniting with his family. We are going to guide him through a reintegration process that will address any medical and emotional concerns and ensure we get him in a good place to reunite with his family. So I don't know what reintegration and emotional help looks like, but I'm interested to see this unfold because, I mean, I don't know what two or three months in North Korea actually looks like for this individual and what his experience has been, but I I think this is one to watch, basically. Yeah, I wonder if they're going to let him speak about North Korea. Well, also, it's really interesting. There's a big point being made. Um, There's this sort of global attention on the fact that, like, did the US give them anything to give him back? But Biden's come out and said there's been no concessions made. North Korea did just give him back. But I also think it's important to talk about the statement that was released from North Korea. Mm. This has come from North Korea's state news agency. They said that Private King had confessed to illegally entering North Korea because it said he harboured ill feeling against inhuman maltreatment and racial discrimination within the US Army and was disillusioned about the unequal US society. Because I read that, but I actually didn't realise that was from North Korea. Yeah. So I'm speculating hard Mm -hmm. here. Yeah, yeah, please. But that 
statement from North Korea would have been the statement to North Korean citizens as well. Is that just building more of the narrative against, you know, the it's US. the US that's evil, not us yeah. kind of thing? But I think that's probably, if there has been no concessions and he's been given back just freely and claimed to be just illegally intruding and have been happy to so willfully give him over without any negotiations, I'd indicate it's because they're going to use it as a platform to threaten the US in some sense, to mm. uh, to at least undermine them or discredit them. Yeah, And well, that's, that's what and they've done that. as. Yeah. Interesting. Yes, it's very interesting. So uh, this is one to watch, I think, and there'll be, a, I would assume a documentary's on the way. No, I, I well, don't know. I would say, not that concessions would be made, but I wonder if part of it would have to be an agreement that North Korea would make that he would stay tight-lipped about whatever happened. But I just also think that, uh, this is controversial, I'm speculating again. I just think, like, what happens when someone comes back? They're like, what are the US government doing to him right now? To keep him tight-lipped. Yeah. Probe him about what he saw, what he experienced, but also what he's allowed to then tell the public. What happens there? I don't think we'll ever... No. No. Hate that. Hate that. Feminist writer Clementine Ford has gone head-to-head with Maddie J and Laura Byrne in a never-ending online feud. This was just random... This week. So pretty much the fan favourite couple from The Bachelor back in 2017, Laura Byrne and Maddie J, have got themselves into this argument with Clementine Ford after Maddie J shared a video on social media which joked about how his mum had to step in and help him with the domestic chores while Laura has been away. Also, before I go ahead with this, just if you need, so like, yes, Maddie J, he was on The Bachelor. His wife, Laura Byrne, was the winner of his season and is also the co-host of the Life Uncut podcast. If you need to know who Clementine Ford is, Clementine is a famous Australian feminist writer. She was a columnist for years, but probably better known for the books she's written, including Fight Like a Girl, Boys Will Be Boys, How We Love, and I Don't is her most recent one, I think. It's coming out next month. So she has a very big following. Some people would describe her as controversial. I don't actually know much about Clementine Ford, to be honest. Yeah, I do, obviously. I follow all three of these people, and so I've been really interested to watch this over the last few days. Clementine is probably got, you know, probably a quarter of a million followers, I would Mm. think, and I think Maddie J and Laura Byrne have quite similar followings, or over 300,000 each, I think. Yeah. Um, Clementine is... I would say, like, people position her as being, like, this harsh, radical feminist. I don't think... She's as radical as people think she is. I think that she is very much pigeonholed and portrayed differently by the media as to what she is. But I think she is quite a force to be reckoned with in the feminist space and one of Australia's Mm. most prolific feminist writers and presences in media. Okay, so back to this story. So Maddie J posted on TikTok and Instagram a reel or a TikTok showing his mum doing all the housework as Laura's away, as I'm said. He then captioned it, when your partner's away from work and you have to single parent. So Clementine saw this and then she absolutely slammed Matty on her Instagram stories. She said, Matty Joe's wife... Now... She, a mistake, I would suggest. Yeah. I, I'm looking at this screenshot, it looks like an error. I think that was a typo, but... Or a sick burn, to yeah. not get his name right. Matty Joe's <laughs> wife has gone away, leaving him to single parent, according to the caption. And the joke here is, of course, he's called his mother in to cover for her. Ha ha. I have a whole chapter about this kind of retro-sexist comedy in I Don't, Trouble and Strife Comedy Wife explores how men use comedy like this to hide their incompetency in plain sight. When women complain about it or push back, we're accused yet again of having no sense of humour and, hilariously, of hating men. As I say in the chapter, you pick up the ball they throw and do nothing more than describe the ball and you're the one that hates men. Can you explain this to me? My take on that is, okay, so if... 
incompetency is the ball. Mm-hmm. Men are throwing the ball of incompetency. She's picking up and saying, oh, it's incompetency. And then they're saying, you hate men for picking up and describing what the, the basics of the behaviour oh, is. So she's saying, like, you're just pointing out the flaw and suddenly you're the one who hates men when you're just calling it out, calling what you see. Yeah. Okay. Did Maddie respond? Yes, he did. Sort of. So pretty much his wife, Laura, then took to Instagram and made a video defending Maddie. And in the video, she says, the reason I need to justify this is because outrage culture is so great. It achieves many things, but the anger needs to be channeled to where it's useful. Matt is actually the primary caregiver in our household. Matt does more than 70% of the parenting because I do more than 70% of the work. It's very non-traditional skew in terms of labor. She then goes on to say, those things are very important parts of the story to keep perspective on when you going to get angry about something on the internet. Mm, I really love this story. Mm. Does it end there? No. Clementine takes to her story again, calling the couple precious fucking peccadillos. Wow. I did see this. (laughs) Yeah. So she said, the defense of these people goes so deep that even the most basic of criticisms against the content they choose to create is somehow you having an unfair crack at them. So I think a lot of people jumped on the like Clementine Ford's overreacting, you're like take a joke kind of thing. She then goes on to say, it articulates the way that these people still operate in a high school mentality. We're the cool popular kids at school and you can't say anything mean about us even though we're being total dicks. She's not mincing her words. I actually really, oh, I really like that. You really like that? Because I I know we're going to discuss this more, but the immediate thing I want to say is I do love Maddie J and Laura Byrne. And I love Clementine Ford. I'm a huge fan for different reasons of all three. Mm. But I really understand the mob mentality of picking a side based on who you like better more than whose point you agree with. And I think that what tends to happen, especially with people who are influencers online, is when people have been devoted and blindly loyal to their content, they have rose-coloured glasses and they fail to cut through the shit. So I think a lot of people might not actually agree with the spirit of the videos, but because they love them, they're willing to overlook it. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested I'm interested in pointing that out. I'm not interested – I'm actually not actually that interested in having a massive crack at them. I'm interested in talking about it. Mm. Um, but I do, I do like that point. Okay, so it doesn't end there either because actually, well, something I should have mentioned earlier is when all the initial backlash happened from Clementine first comment on it, Maddie actually made a video that originally looked like it was going to be an apology video, but then it turns out to be like a kind of a mock video because then in the background, it's his mom again, like doing his laundry and like asking him, like, I don't know. And then it's like, mom, stop interrupting. I'm trying to make a video. Yeah. He just really doubles down on it. But in response to Clementine reacting, he then reshares that video to his story, which... Petty. Interesting. Laura also commented on the video and said, oh, can your mom also watch the car while she's there? And then Clementine responds saying that she's aware of this mock video now, essentially. And she says... Extremely niche Australian online intrigue, but I've been sent a few messages today about some response video from Laura, the more famous half of the Maddie J duo. Yikes. What a dig. I don't care about that and I haven't watched it, but I will say this to anyone even remotely following this nonsense or invested in that 
Pears brand. Don't you think it's weird that everyone prior to me who had a problem with it was either ignored or summarily dismissed in a mock apology video made by Maddie J. I just feel like if you're caring for people like this, it helps to be aware that they don't actually care what their audience thinks because they don't think you have any important kind of influence. I actually don't like that. And the reason I don't like that is because I think that what I dislike is assuming intent and I don't think it dismisses everyone's feelings and th- that they don't care about anyone or anything. Like I no, think that's I a didn't bit blunt. Get that I either. think that's a blunt force instrument and I just think it's getting away from the point. Mm. I think that Clementine has actually made some really important points and I think that my takeaway from this is that I don't necessarily disagree or agree with either side. Oh, my God, Ben said are crazy for me. But what I do think is that... Maddie J's videos were not tasteful and the reason for that in, from my perspective is that they might be funny to him because he is the primary caregiver and actually does the work, but mm. they are reaching an audience and learning with an audience of people that are shit. Yeah, I think that is the take. I think if you know Maddie J and Laura and you follow them and you listen to their podcasts and you're across their work, like you know he does a dad podcast, yeah. you would know that that is satire and you would know that his intended audience of his loyal followers would understand that. But I even would argue that his intended audience is probably women who are in relationships where they're bearing the brunt of the load and are in that poor domestic situation. So even though they're laughing, it's like actually kind of a sad indictment on society. So I I, I actually even struggle with that. I'm like, what I don't like, because I did watch all of Clementine's stories, the only other thing I don't like is when people with online platforms all come for each other and start pointing out the money stuff, because yes, they do have money, but we actually don't know their financial situation. We don't know what the books look like. And I don't like the blanket assumptions about their care towards their followers or their like life behind the scenes. Mm. What I do care for is having, I think it's important to have a critique of content like this. And I think it's important to point out the flaws and why it's landing wrong with audiences. But I think beyond that, it's a bit hard to make these assumptions that are pretty sweeping. Yeah, it was more to the point that is reaching a much broader audience right now of people that aren't getting that he's intending this as a joke or wouldn't know that he actually does a lot of the housework. So they're actually thinking he's on their side because they don't get the content, if that makes sense. No, I just think it's not actually 50,000 dads who do 70% of the primary caregiving laughing at that joke. Uh, Exactly. Yes. I don't like the way that it gets into these really like personal vicious attacks. Mm. I think that's such a culmination of social media online shit. But I also know that she's probably saying these things because she's receiving a barrage of abuse from their stands. I would say from both. Yeah, they would both have their individual audiences though yeah. going for it right now. Yeah, I um, I hate the way these things unfold. I think they need to be like stopped at the start. Mm. But I still think it's an important conversation to be had and I'm glad that she raised it. This episode is brought to you by Verb Super. I am so glad Verve is our sponsor this week and I really appreciate the sort of insights and sort of the passion they bring for women-founded businesses. Yeah. I am a women-founded business. Are. Me, myself, I'm a female entrepreneur. I, I don't like using the E-word, but I actually should lean into it because it's really important because I think that there's a specific bias that women-led businesses face, but I do think that we also bring really unique qualities and perspectives and insights to business. And I really think that the landscape for female founders is going to be changing over the next few years. And I think that businesses like Verve are really changing the way women can operate in business and empowering us. And I think that's why we are all for Verve, which is Australia's first ethically invested super founded by women for Women Plus. 
The world of finance wasn't built for women, but Verve is here to change that. In a first for superannuation, Verve seeks out investments in Australian companies that are leading the way in gender equality and inclusion. And the best part is it's really simple to join. Join Verve Super, an easy way to build wealth and invest in a better world. Head to vervesuper.com.au to learn more. Information provided is general. Verve Super is issued by ETSL. Read the PDS and TMD at vervesuper.com.au and consider if right for you. Just like my interest in the NFL, inflation is on the rise this month, hitting 5.2%. I'm really proud of that. That's a great headline. (laughs) Thank you. I tried really hard to make inflation interesting. (laughs) We're entering snooze town, but stay with me, people. This is think this is snooze town. Everyone's affected by this right now. Everyone is. And I just want to explain it because I think that I can explain it in a way that is engaging. (laughs) Wait, Wait. that's why we hired you. (laughs) (laughs) So inflation is an increase in the price of goods and services that households buy. So basically the percentage is measured as the rate changes of those prices. Mm. The way it's measured is that the most common way is consumer price index. You'll see it CPI, right? Mm -hmm. It basically measures the percentage change in the price of a basket of goods and services consumed by normal households. In Australia, CPI is calculated by the ABS, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, Mm -hmm. another fascinating acronym, people. Stay with me. But it's published once a quarter, once every three months. So To calculate the CPI, the ABS collects prices of thousands of items. They fit into 11 groups, and that will be things like housing, you know, um, food and non-alcoholic beverages, childcare, education, health, and basically considered as literally a basket of goods, the price of that and the change over time. So every quarter, the ABS calculates the price changes of each item from the previous quarter Mm. and then works out the inflation rate for the entire basket. Makes sense. So in July, inflation was at 4.9%. It has risen to 5.2% in August. Basically, if you had the same basket of goods last year, you'd find that it's 5.2% more expensive overall now. (sighs) That is so upsetting. I know. (laughs) But for, for context... Inflation peaked last December at 8.4%. So the reduction is because the Reserve Bank has been raising the cash rate since May last year. And essentially what that's trying to do is ensure that consumers are... The literal definition of this is make sure consumers are struggling and spending less to slow the rate of inflation. Mm. It's not great. Right, People are struggling right now. But for the last three meetings the Reserve Bank has held, they've kept the cash rate at the same rate, which is 4.1%. But their next meeting will be held today. So we'll have an update? We'll have an update after yeah. today as to whether they're raising that cash rate, which will basically mean and, – and they may because inflation is on the rise from last month, um, but we don't know. They could keep it the same. Well, that's literally what we have to see this afternoon. It'll be breaking news. Breaking news. You'll be seeing it everywhere. We might update on the stories then. Yes. For that. To keep you involved in... Uh, because I think the thing is, is that people see inflation, they see the percentage, they see the Reserve Bank, and they hear finance struggling, and they... I think it is hard to pay attention. Mm. But it really is important to understand how this is all functioning because it gives us the ability to critique it, to know what we're buying, what we're engaging in, and it matters for property prices. It matters for literally everything. Oh, yeah. It matters for everything you're purchasing in your day-to-day life. It matters for mortgages. It matters for everything. I think people need to pay attention. And understanding how it's calculated is important to keeping up. Agreed. And then you can keep the line, just print more money, purely to wind guys up. And actually know what you're talking about. I love saying that to a finance bro on a dinner date. (laughs) Thank you for making that fun. The Joe Jonas and Sophie Turner saga continues. I love it. No, I don't for her. 
Uh, well, it's just never ending. Yeah. I think we all need an update. Yep. Because it definitely feels like it's far from over. And Sophie is, she's just continuing to absolutely nail these PR moves with a bazillion photos now coming out of her and like Taylor Swift out and she's at Chiefs games and she's in New York City. And she looks so hot. She looks so good. But as you probably already know, and if not, you can go back to our previous episodes and get the original catch up of what happened with them. Not the one where I claim they're not getting a divorce. Maybe skip that episode, go to the one afterwards. TMZ Sarah. (laughs) Yeah, but they pretty much announced their divorce a few weeks ago after TMZ broke the news. And then they made it official with a joint statement on Instagram and everyone was shocked, but we thought that would be it. And then things got weird really fast. Like first off, Joe was obviously given some terrible PR advice. Pretty much his camp tried to peddle this narrative that Sophie was this loose cannon who wanted to party and was like leaving him with the kids all the time. But the story didn't really stick because a lot of people pointed out that that didn't really make sense of their narrative as a couple for the last few years. Also, everyone was like, Sophie's cooler than you. That's Harsh. But true. Harsh but true. Everyone was like, "Eh, I like Sophie more. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's where we left off on the podcast, but I'm sure you saw on socials, we all collectively lost our minds when Sophie then stepped out with Taylor Swift for dinner, which if you don't know why that's a big deal, Taylor Swift is Joe Jonas's ex-boyfriend and they had like a very public messy breakup. They were children. It was like 2008, but like he famously broke up with her on like a 20 second phone call. They then became friends as a couple, like her and Joe Alwyn and Sophie Turner and Joe Jonas. And they even got a shout out in Invisible String, which is a song that Taylor Swift has. It's really sweet. It is really sweet. Not anymore. Um, Not anymore. The next day, more news breaks. Sophie makes her own statement and then files a lawsuit against Joe. And according to the documents cited by page six, Sophie filed a lawsuit for the immediate return of children wrongfully removed or wrongfully retained. So the document claims that the couple agreed to make the UK their forever home and that Joe was preventing her from taking the kids back in the UK. Anyways, as explained in this document, Sophie and Joe agreed that although the UK was their home now, the kids would go with Joe to the States for the month of August while Joe was on the Jonas Brothers tour, saying that Joe would have more time during the day to spend with the kids while Sophie would be busy filming in the UK, and that in September they would then all properly reunite and then go back home. However, Their marriage broke down, allegedly, in an argument on August 15th, which is also Joe's birthday. Now, we don't actually know a lot about this fight, but a lot has come out since, like, there's a tidbit going around that Joe heard Sophie talking smack about him on the ring camera. (gasps) Well, Sarah, how the hell do you find this shit out? I'm a psychopath. I didn't even know about any of this. Yeah. Joe then filed for divorce while his children were with him in America. And as Page Six reports, Sophie then found out through the media. So apparently, like as we were all like speculating at like TMZ breaking the news, so was Sophie. She claims she found out at the same time we all did. Oh my God. Which would be awful. Devastating. Devastating. If that is true, that's fucked up. Also imagine being caught just having a little vent on a ring camera. And then you're yeah. in the news reports you're getting a divorce. Also, imagine having parents that are both so busy that you're kind of getting thrown between countries. Like, that's really rough. I think so too because they're really young. They're tiny. Okay. Allegedly, they then met up on September 17th in New York to discuss this separation. And Sophie 
reiterated her plans for the children to grow up in England. But as the document claims, the father has the possession of the children's passport and he refuses to return the passports to the mother and refuses to send the children home to England with their mother. So he's keeping their passports hostage, essentially, so they can't return home. That's abusive behaviour. It's abusive behaviour. Did Joe respond to this? Yes. So his rep then told Page Six that the lawsuit was a harsh legal position that goes against their amicable co-parenting setup. It then went on to say, Joe is seeking shared parenting with the kids so that they are raised by both mother and father and, of course, is also okay with the kids being raised both in the US and the UK. So he's pretty much claiming that this whole, like, that's their forever home, that was what was agreed upon, isn't true. It goes on, this is an unfortunate legal disagreement about a marriage that is sadly ending when language like abduction is used, it is misleading at best and a serious abuse of the legal system at worst. He also went on to say that the sources that were going around saying that like Sophie's a party animal, etc. were not true and not from Joe's camp. Side note, and I know this is off topic, but the legal documents also revealed the name of their second child, which we didn't know before. And it's Delphine Jonas. Quite lovely. I quite like that name. But I also feel bad that it's been revealed. Yeah, I know. I also just don't like when you clearly see that both parties are now just leaking and leaking and leaking to the media as a form of revenge or... It's just so sad when it's big names like this, how public it is and how they have to protect their reps for the sake of their jobs as well. Yeah. Then on September 28th, Taylor Swift is back. So according to multiple reports, Taylor Swift has now loaned Sophie Turner her New York City apartment to stay in with the kids. Then Sophie comes through with the receipts. So as I was saying before, so much of this battle has been over this argument, like are they going to live in the UK forever or not? And was that agreed upon or not? So Sophie pretty much shares a letter that proves that the forever home in the UK was agreed upon. And she did this by sharing a private letter that Joe had written to a homeowner in Oxford when they were trying to secure the home. And the letter said, We could tell that your family have truly loved living here and we can envision our children growing up here and making this our forever home. Yeah, it's just a sell. I don't love that as evidence of anything. But he does say forever home. No, I know. But of course you'd say that when you're trying to buy the property from people that are a bit wanky and want to sell the home to people that will live in it forever. I mean, I know what you're saying, but I still think... Like, of course, I'm obviously Team Sophie, but I'm like, eh, that's not it. But in the state of legalities, it does literally state forever home. Look. (laughs) Yeah, I don't love it. Okay, so September 30, so Sophie Turner was spotted yet again with Taylor Swift, as well as Blake Lively. The group were also joined by Brittany Mahomes, the wife of Kansas City Sheep's quarterback, Patrick and is teammates with Swift's rumoured boyfriend, Travis Kelsey, of course. Side note about Travis and Taylor, Donald Trump has given his two cents on the relationship by posting, I wish the best for the both of them. I hope they enjoy their life. Maybe together, maybe not. Most likely not. What is it? What the fuck? I wish Albo would just start commenting on famous couples in Australia. And oh, sorry, that's a really bad comparison because Trump's not in charge, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I know what you mean. So Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey also, as another side note, have reportedly joked about going to Heidi Klum's very famous Halloween party as Barbie and Ken after those like memes went wild of them about like it's so Barbie and Ken coded. I so, so want them to be together. That would be hilarious. Okay. Then on October 2nd, this is the latest update. Taylor Swift is leaving the stadium with Sophie Turner, Blake Lively and Hugh Jackman. 
after another Chiefs game that they all went to together, where Taylor is seen hugging Travis's mom pretty much the whole time. And I just love that Hugh Jackman was with them as well, because this actually broke a while ago, but if you didn't hear Hugh Jackman and his ex-wife, now Deborah Lee Furness, have called it quits, they were together three decades, 30 years, and they were just so publicly devoted to each other that everyone was really shocked. It was a really beautiful relationship and that was really sad to me. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, that is the update and the drama. Simply, just just for everyone, Sarah's final bullet point on this story is slay. <laughs> <laughs> I just like that they're all together. I do too. I really like this story. Jacinta Allen is Victoria's new premier following the resignation of Dan Andrews last week after nine years in the job. So Allen was previously the deputy premier under Andrews for the last year and was the favourite to take the job following his announcement last week. She was challenged briefly by the public transport minister, Ben Carroll, but he withdrew his bid and he will now hold the position of deputy under her government. So I put here Slay Girl Boss. <laughs> <laughs> Jacinta Allen will only be the second woman to be Premier in Victoria and the last woman to do the job was more than 30 years ago. Wow. I know. That's awesome. Yeah. Obviously, she's stepping into the role at quite a challenging time. If you remember recently, Victoria cancelled the 2026 Commonwealth Games mm. basically on the, on the basis of the budget and they're actually currently more than $100 billion in debt. <sighs> Is this a glass cliff scenario? Potentially. Potentially. I mean... I Look, I don't think that's the case, but uh, I'm interested to see what Jacinta does. I'm also I'm also finding it, I don't know what it is. I've never lived in Victoria before, but it kind of made me sad because seeing so many of the premiers that we were all watching every day during COVID leave has kind of been a weirdly emotional experience. You know what? I, hand on heart, would not have known the name of a single premier before, before COVID. And they became like celebrities. Yes, through COVID. And yeah. so, like, I saw Dan Andrews. I was like, oh, Dan Andrews. Yeah. I know him. Like, Remember when he fell? It was awful. Like, I yeah. literally know so much about their, yeah. like these politicians' private lives because they were literally in our screens every day every day for mm-hmm. years. And so it is kind of a strange time to be connected to state premiers because I kind of know I won't keep up as well with these newbies that are coming into the fold. Yeah, I've never lived in Victoria, but I don't know, it made me sad. And it was quite an abrupt resignation. He, you know, announced it that he was be concluding the role at 5pm the following day. Mm. So it was quite an abrupt announcement last week, but he was in the role for a long time. And uh, I, despite, you know, the, con- the sort of conditions, the debt and what we're talking about now, I, I was genuinely sad to see him go. Yeah, well, he was also a kind of controversial, like a lot of people in Melbourne were pretty yeah, sick yeah, of yeah, the yeah. lockdowns. And Absolutely. Stuff. And the way that the media reported on him was like, very negative. Yeah. Um, and they did call him a dictator. They said he was too harsh. There was very wide criticism of Dan Andrews, understandably so. You know, I can understand why people have these different opinions and mm. they're worth noting. But yeah, no, I'm interested to see how Jacinta steps up and what happens from here. Okay, now we're in our Q&A section. Thank you guys for listening this far again. Uh, quite a few questions in our inbox about Russell Brand and if there's an update. And there is. So pretty much what we know on that is that the police are now investigating further allegations. So I think since the documentary started or aired, more women have come forward. Shock. 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 That never happens. Shock. So, it. I mean, from what we understand of what the police have said is that none of them are recent from more back historic in, this time. in nature. Not, not too long ago, but more historic in nature by the looks of things. Yeah, but they are now, it is now a formal investigation. Yes. Also, I'm, 
you might have seen this online, but he did come out with another video about three minutes long where he said he still denies these very serious criminal allegations and then he thanked his supporters for questioning the allegations of rape and sexual assault against him and that these past few weeks have been extraordinary and distressing for him. I I, I don't... I, I'm literally... I have nothing to say on this, you know? Like, there is just... I'm... I always think it's vindicating when women come forward and then mm. that sort of opens the floodgates. It's obviously horrific when mm. that become when the person becomes a, a serial offender, a serial person accused of this perpetration of this kind of violence and there's a clear pattern of behaviour here. Yeah. But that also means that the online floodgates are just backing him in further. Yeah, I think this is exactly how we predicted Absolutely. it would go. I think I would have been more shocked if there wasn't any further comment on this. So that's not surprising. It's also not surprising that he would continue with his narrative as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it just speaks to a pattern of behaviour. And again, we have to watch as these multiple now criminal investigations unfold. Um, We'll see. We'll see. Watch this space. Thank you guys so much for listening again this week. If you want to send us any questions or contribute to our Q&A that we'll be doing next week, you can send through on bigsmalltalk_pod, and we'll see you next Tuesday. See you next Tuesday. <laughs>